I've been cleaning out my office and I found a little booklet that a friend of mine gave me many, many years ago. I've made a conscientious effort to try and clean my office. My wife has been motivating me by making me watch episodes of Hoarders. And it absolutely creeps me out, that series. And it sufficiently motivates me so that I can say I have to be able to get rid of certain things. But this is one of the things that I kept and for good reason. The author is unknown, but let me read it to you. He's talking about the Bible. And it says this book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation the doom of sinners and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored. Heaven is opened. The gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand object. Our good is its design and the glory of God is its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is given you in life. It will be opened in the judgment and it will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility. It will reward the greatest labor and it will condemn all who trifle with its sacred content. Isn't that good? The Bible. In Jeremiah chapter seven, he began a sermon at the temple gate and the sermon was a proclamation, a declaration of an impending judgment. It contained both warning and condemnation. Warning because a judgment was coming. Condemnation because the people had deceived themselves. They had deceived themselves over false and hypocritical worship in chapter 7. Their prayers were doing no good. Their sacrifices were useless. The false prophets had lied to them and the false prophets had assured them that the covenants made with Abraham and Moses would keep them from harm or judgment. And the false prophets opposed Jeremiah's message and ministry and were leading the people astray. Jeremiah had warned them about their false confidence in the covenant in chapter nine and that that covenant and the fact that they were breaking that covenant or that they were, were recipients of the covenant and then broke the covenant. Would create a mechanism where they would embrace judgment. Inevitable judgment would take place because of their consistent and persistent disobedience in chapter nine. The people had refused spiritual understanding and Jeremiah will contrast and compare now the false pagan religion 
and the true and the living God. Look at chapter 10. We're going to read to verse 16. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them, for the customs of the peoples are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your rightful due for among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there's none like you. But they are altogether dull hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten into plates and is brought from Tarshish and gold from Ufaz. The work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the metalsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skillful men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth will tremble. And the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth. And from under these heavens, he has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. He stretched out the heavens at his discretion. And when he utters his voice, there's a multitude of waters in the heavens. And he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. Everyone is dull hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image. For his molded image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. When we go all the way back to Genesis and we find Abraham, he is a pagan, an idol worshiper. You see, most of us are an ex-something. Abraham was an ex-pagan and an ex-idol worshiper. And God showed up and made him a promise and told him to go in a different direction. And for some of you, and for many of you, there was a time in your life when God showed up and he asked you to go in a different direction. Some of you grew up in a Christian home. Some of you didn't. Some of you became the very first person in your family to turn from your sin and to embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. In Egypt, 
when the children of Israel found themselves multiplying there and then Moses was raised up, their 400 years of constant exposure in Egypt had infiltrated their thinking and had infected many of Jacob's offspring. When the children of Israel left Egypt, something weird and wicked happened. They took a little piece of Egypt with them. They had grown up in an atmosphere of pagan idolatry and cultic worship and idolatry and affection for things that were idols. And even when they left Egypt, there was a little bit of Egypt left in their heart. And so it is when people come to Jesus. Sometimes the passions and the affections that once enslaved us, we return to them. The passions and affections come back to us and they call out to us again. You see, the children of Israel had witnessed the deliverance of God and the miracles of God and the glory of God. And they had heard the voice of God and they had accepted the law of God and they said that they would make a promise to God. But the psalmist wrote, quote, in Psalm 106, verse 20, they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. In other words, they said they would do all of those things, but then they returned to idol worship. That's what happened when Aaron constructed the golden calf. You see, most people don't understand something. When Aaron constructed the golden calf, he wasn't making a deity of Egypt. He was trying to take the invisible God and make the invisible God visible. For all intents and purposes, he was trying to represent the invisible, self-existent, eternal God in a way that they thought was precious so that they could touch the idol and see the idol. Israel would watch their neighbors and they would embrace their practices because there was something deeply and terribly wrong. Idolatry was still in their heart. A.W. Tozier wrote that the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. I like that. Idolatry is more than just bowing down to a statue or paying obeisance to some stone statue. It's when you wake up in the morning and you think thoughts about God that are unworthy of God. Paul wrote that idolatry was worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. The gifts rather than the giver of the gifts. The psalmist wrote that we become like the thing we worship in Psalm 115, verse 8. It says those who make them are like them and so is everyone who trusts in them. The early church father Augustine made the comment, quote, Thus does the world forget you, its creator, and falls in love with what you have created instead of you. What a great definition of idolatry. It's loving anything or anyone more than the creator. And so Jeremiah is going to declare, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, 
how worthless idols are. And then he's going to talk about how incredible and incomparable is the value of the true and living God in verses 6 through 16. And then he's going to talk about the inevitable consequences of worshiping something that's not real and that's not valuable and that's not eternal and that's really not there in verses 17 through 26. So he begins... With idols aren't valuable. Look again in verse 1. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. The passage basically contains two warnings. That the children of Israel are not to embrace The pagan idol worship of the Gentiles. They're not to be seduced into thinking or believing that astrology or heavenly bodies or celestial signs in the sky determine their future. But the instruction that was given so long ago still remains pertinent to you and I. Because we live in a world, and remember Paul will talk about it in Romans chapter 12 when he says, Don't be conformed to this world but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There are pressures around us on TV, on the radio, in in the public education system. All around us, people are choking us and squeezing us and trying to, to mold us into their image and into their worldview. The rules and rituals of man-made religion stresses a a work-based righteousness. And so over and over again, the Bible will present the true and living God. But the world out there will tell you that it's okay to create, fabricate, and then venerate a God of your own imagination. How many times have you had a conversation with someone when you talk about the things in the Bible and they'll say to you, that's not the God I believe in. Tell me again the God that you believe in. Well, it's certainly not that God in the Bible. It's not the God in the Bible who is just and holy and righteous, who hates sin. But what about what the rest of the Bible says? who loves sinners, who's willing to himself be the sacrifice and the provision for sin, who sent his own son to die so that you could be reconciled, so that you could experience the grace and the forgiveness and the hope. That's too narrow. That's too limiting. That's not the kind of Bible. That's not the God I believe in. But guess what? That's the God who's revealed in the Bible. Because guess what? Any God that is the product of their own imagination is exactly that, a God of their imagination ancient peoples believed that there were powerful messages that would come from the sky imagine that you lived 4,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago and you are on this dirt ball called the earth and you're seeing lights in the sky and they're swirling all around you in the ancient world they were astonished and amazed by comets and meteors and planetary movements and solar and lunar eclipses and the people believed that these celestial bodies were powerful influences on the earth now we all know that the earth is a planet and that it revolves around our sun 
We all know that life on the planet is dependent on the sun. We all know that the ocean tides are governed by gravity that's exerted on the moon, which revolves around our planet. We don't deny that the sun and the moon and the solar system and the galaxy make life possible. We don't deny that. But what we affirm is that the galaxy and the solar system and the sun and the moon, even though they exert powerful influences on us that there is a God who created this universe and the solar system and the sun and the moon and the earth and everything in it and all of reality is subject to that God. That's what we believe. And in verse 3 it says for the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. Jeremiah is going to present an argument. He's, he issues the warning and he builds this case that idols are worthless and useless and helpless. And as he begins the case, he says, hey, look, people cut down trees. They carve those wooden images onto the surface of the tree. In verse 4, it says they decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil, nor can they do good. This is exactly what Paul had read and then repeated in the New Testament when he said that, a, that an idol is nothing. It's a piece of dirt, or it's a piece of stone, or it's a piece of metal, or it's a piece of wood. It has no value. It has no identity. It can neither do good nor evil. And so the expression, like a palm tree, means that the idol, like a palm tree, if you've ever seen a palm, it's just this kind of ugly-looking stick. The only thing that gives it a sense of grace and beauty is the leaves that sort of hang over the top of the stick. Idols are nothing. In Jeremiah chapter 6 it says, The wooden gods overlaid with gold and silver are like a scarecrow in a field of cucumbers protecting nothing. Some of you grew up on a farm and some of you are aware of what it is to be surrounded by corn. And you stick a scarecrow in the middle of the cornfield. And you know that that scarecrow isn't really alive, even though you were forced like me to watch repetitively The Wizard of Oz. You know that it really won't come back to life. And Jeremiah is trying to appeal and reason with the people. How can something that has been made by God and fabricated by human beings have any power whatsoever? In Psalm 81.9 we read, There shall be no foreign God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. In verse 10 it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. The psalmist gives this picture of birds in a nest, hungry, needy, chirping. Some of you have seen that image where the bird will go beep, 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 beep. And they open their mouth wide for their parent. And and remember, the mother sticks that beak right down their throat. That's the image. The image is, you're hungry, you're thirsty, you're needy, you're empty. I'll fill you up. But for whatever reason, we sometimes think that that's really not true. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, Paul wrote, You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Paul writes, hey, look, you can't blame the fact that you grew up Gentile, that you grew up in a pagan home, or you grew up in a home filled with superstition. That's not your fault. But the truth is, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you begin to understand something that the God who reveals himself in the Bible is the true and the living God, that you are no longer to be carried around by superstition. Hardly a a year will go by when we start to get near Christmas that someone won't read this passage to me and they'll go, Look at, look at what it says. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it won't topple. They're talking about a Christmas tree. Does Jeremiah prohibit, condemn, forbid you from ma- having a Christmas tree in your home? No, that's, that, Christmas trees didn't even in, weren't invented then. As a matter of fact, you hear me talk a lot about gotquestions.org. There's a wonderful article that's posted there. Here's a here's the paragraph quote. There's nothing in the Bible that either commands or prohibits Christmas trees. It has been falsely claimed by some that Jeremiah chapter 10 verses 1 through 16 prohibit the cutting down and the decorating of trees in the same manner as we do at Christmas. However, even a cursory reading of the text makes it clear that the passage is one in which Jeremiah sets forth the prohibition against idols made of wood plated with silver and gold and worship. A similar idea appears in Isaiah 44, where Isaiah speaks of the silliness of idol worshipers who cut down a tree burn part of the fire to warm themselves and then use the other part to fashion an idol which they then bow down to so unless we bow down to our Christmas tree carve it into an idol and pray to it it doesn't really apply and by the way if you do carve an idol into it if you do bow down to it if you do pray to it see me after the service Because you have a whole another set of problems that we're going to have to deal with. And so, in verse 6, it says, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great in might. So he talks about the phoniness of idols and then he talks about this this contrast between the stark realities of idols, nothing, worthless, useless, helpless. And then he contrasts that and compares it with the true and living God in the Bible. The Lord God, Jehovah, is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Now think about what he's doing. Idols, dead. God, alive. Idols, nothing. God, everything. He says there's no one and nothing like the Lord. In verse 7 it says, Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there's none like you. First of all, there's no God like God. And second, he's bringing out the reality that if you were to take every single wise person in on the planet Earth, 
the wisest of the wise. And you got one and then ten and then a hundred and a thousand and then a million and then a billion. If you took every single person, the sum and the substance of every person on this planet and you took their cumulative knowledge and understanding, would it compare to God? No. The Hebrews difficult in verse seven. It seems to be saying that no human being is like God. I think that that's the point. If you take the sum and the substance of human intelligence, there's nothing compared to God. Since human beings are miserable candidates for worship. He's basically saying sun, moon, stars, universe, unworthy of worship. Man-made, fabricated religious ideologies, unworthy to be worshipped. Human beings, unworthy to be worshipped. That's the point. By the way, Babylon had a sophisticated scientific community. When it says, for among all the wise men of the nations... They had a sophisticated way to accumulate information and then transmit that information. As a matter of fact, later on, if you've ever heard or read or studied the book of Daniel, Daniel will be set in charge, if you will, over the wise men of Babylon. And so he says, you're the king of the nations who would not fear you, O king of the nations. The idea, of course, is the idea that the sovereign God is in charge of the nations. By the way, the fear of the Lord isn't superstitious fear. Thomas Fuller used to say, quote, they that worship God merely from fear would worship the devil, too, if he would appear. In other words, we don't worship God because he scares us. That's not what the fear of the Lord means. It doesn't mean we're scared to death. The fear of God is that profound sense of awe that washes over the surface of the soul when you consider all that God is and all that God does. In Psalm 25, 14, it says the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes his covenant known to him. We must fear God through love, not love God through fear. Love motivates us to put God in the proper place and under the proper perspective. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Let us purify ourselves from everything that makes body or soul unclean and let us be completely holy by living in awe of God. That's the point that he's making. In other words, when you begin to fill your heart with the beauty and the majesty of God, that in and of itself begins to cleanse you. In verse eight, it says, but they are altogether dull hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. We might say. As for the discipline from such futilities, that's the idols. That's nonsense. It's Jeremiah's way of saying, can idols demand and execute judgment? 
I want you to think about that for just a moment. If idols are nothing, can they trick you or condemn you or create within you some obligation? In other words, can they make a demand and then punish you if you don't meet that demand? What Jeremiah is basically saying is no. Remember, people would use manipulation and threat and intimidation to get their way. And so Jeremiah says they can't do anything. In verse 9, silver is beaten into plates. It's brought from Tarshish and gold from Ufaz or Ophir. The work of the craftsmen and the hands of the metalsmith, blue and purple, are their clothing. They are all the work of skillful men. This is Jeremiah's way of saying, but what if the idol's really expensive? What if it's made and fabricated from gold and silver? And by the way, purple dyes were made from a particular Mediterranean creature that when crushed, it would release this majestic purple dye. And so people who wore purple clothing, it was a a sign of wealth and extravagance. People who wore purple in the uh, ancient world shopped at the ancient version of Nordstrom. And so what he's basically saying is, what if the idol is expensive? What if it's expertly crafted? What if it's beautifully encrusted? What if it has an Italian horse and Ferrari right on the front? What if it's made of gold or silver? What if it's a flat screen TV and it costs $5,000? What if it's a 7,000 square foot mansion? What if it's a house on the lake? What if it's really expensive? By the way, his point, they are all the work of skillful men. What does that mean? They're all made by people. And since it's made by a human being, it's not worthy of affection and worship. That's the point that he's making. If a human being can make it, even if it's out of the most precious and costly items that exist on the planet, it is not worthy of worship. By the way, Bible teachers are divided over the exact location of Tarshish. Some have speculated that this is that outpost city that was right on the gates of Hercules as you're leaving the Mediterranean, right on the southern tip of Spain as you enter into the Atlantic Ocean. It could very well be that there were ancient cities silver mines even from there we know that there were tin mines and we know that there were silver mines and and metallic mines even as far north as Britain the Ophaz the location is really unknown some people think that this might have been the gold that's uh, talked about um, in the book of Genesis it's mentioned in Daniel chapter 10 verse 5 but we really also don't know where that gold came from we know that there were gold mines in the Middle East We know that there was a gold mine in what was called Macedonia. And and we also know that there was gold in ancient Turkey. Um, The word skillful in verse 9, they are all the work of skillful men, translates a word that was previously translated wise one in verse 7. In other words, it means expert, professional 
handcrafted. That's the point. And so here's the idea that no matter how skillful the craft craftsman, no matter how beautiful the object, it's not worth worshiping. In verse 10, it says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king at his wrath. The earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. In other words, there's the contrast. The Lord is the true God. Those are false gods. He's the living God. They're all dead. He's the everlasting king. They are all temporal. They can't survive. They won't survive. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. The idea being that once God makes a judgment, he has full power and authority to execute the judgment. And so when it says the Lord is the true God, literally in the Hebrew text, it says the Lord is truth. Isn't that exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6? I am the way and the truth and the life. If truth is a meaningful word, it, it is a word that means it corresponds with reality. It corresponds to that which is real. And when it says, at his wrath, the earth will tremble. How are we to understand that? When we see that sentence, at his wrath, the earth will tremble. William Barclay has a lovely line. He says, quote, the wrath of God is simply the rule of the universe that a man will reap what he sows and that no one ever escapes the consequences of his sin. The wrath of God and the moral order of the universe are one and the same, unquote. I like that. The reason God communicates his expectation. And then he has the ability to fulfill that expectation. Remember, there's a reason why God made you the way that he made you. With the ability to choose or choose otherwise. With the ability to freely, wonderfully, personally enter into a love relationship with your creator. You see, God has made it possible through Jesus. For you to experience his presence and his love, his mercy and his grace, his magnificence, his glory. We were, the Bible says, estranged from God, distant and detached from God, that our sin had created a huge rift, a powerful chasm that could only be reached by God himself. And he reaches out to us through the person of Jesus Christ. He offers his son as the, as the sacrifice for our sin. He builds a bridge back to you and then invites you to love him. And by the way, it is an invitation. And it, it's an invitation that can be embraced or rejected. No wonder... Jeremiah says, thus you shall say to them, the gods, the gods that have not made the heaven and the earth, 
shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. By the way, verse 11 is unique in all the book of Jeremiah. It is the only passage in the whole book that's translated in Aramaic. In other words, the book itself was written in Hebrew, but this sentence is written in Aramaic. And this was the language of the people among the Israelites where they would dwell as captives. In other words, here's what you have to understand something. Why is that? There's, there's a whole chapter in the book of Daniel that's written in the, in, in the Aramaic language. I think that the reason why this particular verse was written in Aramaic, because it was going to send a message into the future. And the message into the future would be for the people who had experienced this judgment and they would be taken captive by the Babylonians. Daniel and his friends, they're going to be transported back to Babylon. But this is a promise. It's a promise in part. Thus you shall say to them who the people who are going to experience and embrace the inevitable judgment that's coming. The gods that, that, that have not made the heavens and the earth. They shall perish from the earth. In other words, Babylon is going to eviscerate any love of idolatry among the Hebrew people. When I was 11 years old, maybe 12 years old, my mother caught me smoking. And so she made me smoke a whole pack of cigarettes until I threw up. When I was 12 years old, she caught me drinking vodka. She made me chug a whole pint of vodka and I threw up. Does that really work? Yes, it really does. It was disgusting. Have you ever thought you wanted something and then you got it and you got a whole lot of it and you were disgusted with it? The children of Israel were going to go to Babylon and they were going to be inundated with idolatry and they would be disgusted by it. Think carefully. This sentence is actually a poem. It's in the Hebrew language called chiastic form. You know, we, we know about poetry, haiku, or we know about Shakespearean sonnets. You know, we know about limericks. You know, there's certain poetic styles that we're aware of. And this is it called Hebrew chiastic form. And it basically, it says that the gods which did not make the heavens and the earth. And again, remember, it's written to the captives who in Aramaic, who are in Babylon, the gods who didn't create the heavens and the earth. That's Nebo and Marduk and Ishtar and the other Babylonian deities. In other words, the prophecy is saying Ishtar, Nebo, Marduk, all of the Babylonian deities, they're going to perish from the earth and under heaven. By the way, just for your information. Have they? I mean, when was the last time you went to a Marduk congregation? Ishtar congregation. Nebo congregation. These are dead, dead, dead religions. They're gone. That's the point that he's making. 
They're not real. They don't offer anything. And then in verse 12, it says he has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and he stretched out the heavens at his discretion. So think about this for a moment. He's contrasting the pagan Babylonian deities. And we might as well say all pagan deities and all pagan pantheons. He contrasts this with the God who is the creator of heavens and earth, who created the universe by the power of his majesty The universe, according to Jeremiah and according to the Bible, is the product of God's mind and God's imagination. And that's the big dividing line. Did matter produce mind which invented a God or did a real God produce this universe? By the way, one of those two things is true. Stephen Hawking said, We don't need a God to create the universe. Well, what did create the universe, Stephen Hawking, professor of physics in the chair of Isaac Newton? Gravity did. Look, you're a physicist. You're supposed to be the smartest man in the world. And what you're telling me is nothing created something. That's right. Really? Really? Is that what you believe? The Bible says God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, that's the first sentence in the Bible, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, if you can get past the first line, the rest of the Bible is a piece of cake. Rich and Tina Kleiss use the illustration that every house is built by someone. But God is the builder of everything. They cite the reality that it takes a mind to build a house. Quote, a home electrical system requires the skilled labor of an electrician who has spent many hours learning this trade. The plumbing requires the work of a plumber who has worked for years as an apprentice. The structure of the house requires the skilled labor of a team of carpenters. The heating system, insulation, drywall, roofing, siding, finishing, carpeting, landscaping require planning, skill, intelligence, but... Not necessarily if you look at some stuff. Before the finished home becomes a reality. He says. Each part of the human body has corresponding components. Our nervous system is far more complex than any electrical system in any building anywhere in the world. Our blood vessels, heart and lungs are infinitely more complex than any home and heating and ventilation system. Our digestive tract is more intricately designed than any plumbing system. Our body fat insulates far more effectively than any home insulation. And if you're from the South, you could say, Amen. There's something about fried food that can insulate you in no time. They write, our skin is far more durable and complex than drywall, siding, paint, carpeting. It takes a mind to conceive, design, build a house. How can we believe that it didn't take a far superior creative intelligence to conceive And create the human body. Have you noticed that no matter how many times you watch the History Channel, no matter how many times you watch the Science Channel, no matter how many times you hear people provide 
evolutionary premises. But it just doesn't ring true. That it doesn't seem to make sense. In verse 13 it says, When he utters his voice, there's a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the sky. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. In other words, this is what Jeremiah is saying. Here is a God who has created the universe, who has created our galaxy, who has created the solar system who has created the relationship of the sun and the moon and the stars and the planet on which we live. And then he begins to talk about the climatological, the hydrological cycle that all of the weather and all of the circumstances and all of our planet is designed and orchestrated by God. Jeremiah is describing the weather and then he's describing God's power. Revealed in the wind and the rain and the thunder and the lightning. And in verse 14 it says, everyone is dull hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image for his molded image is falsehood and there is no breath in him. Do you understand what is happening in verse 14? In verse 14, Jeremiah is making fun of the people who create the idols. In this sense. The metalsmith. The person who's fabricated the idol has lungs and they can breathe in and out. They have a mind and they have a tongue and they have a heart and they're alive. You know what the Bible says? That God created you. God created you with a mind and with a tongue and with a heart. And the metalsmith has created something far inferior to him or her. And then falls down and worships it. Here's what here's what Jeremiah is saying. The idol isn't really alive. And you are. You are because God made you alive. And by the way. It's that fabrication and that story that you learned as a child. Imagine we're all familiar with the story of Pinocchio. Remember how Geppetto creates a little boy out of wood. And he wants more than anything to have a little boy. He wants more than anything to have a son. And he creates this puppet. And the puppet becomes animated through supernatural powers so that Geppetto can be his dad and he can be his son. There's something inside of us. There's something Inside of us that knows that we have a heavenly father, that he created us, that he animated us. By the way, when it says, and there is no breath in them, the word breath is ruach. It's the Hebrew word that can be translated spirit. But what it means in this particular context is it's not, there's no life. And in verse 15, it says they are futile, a work of errors in the time of their punishment. They shall Perish. You know what he's talking about? Man made religion is not real and valuable and won't survive. And then in verse 16, it says the portion of Jacob is not like them. For he is the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. And the Lord of hosts is his name. Jeremiah repeats the utter folly of trusting the idols and man-made religion. He says, think about it. How wonderful it is to trust the true and the living God. And 
In verse 16, there are four relationships that God describes in terms of relationship with the earth. Number one, God is Jacob's portion. Number two, God is the creator of all things. Number three, God stands in a unique and peculiar relationship to Israel. And number four, that God is the Lord of hosts. It's the Bible's way of saying that he's the commander of the hosts of heaven. And I want to draw your attention before we close to that title, the portion of Jacob. What an amazing title. The title speaks of the reciprocity of faith. In other words, this God is the God who belongs to Ephraim. Ephraim or Jacob is God's inheritance. But God also belongs to Ephraim. That is, the true knowledge of God is Ephraim's portion. So here's the idea. Israel, Ephraim, they become proud and smug and conceited in that relationship. And the prophets warned the people to return to their duty. In other words... Israel had a unique and a specific and a peculiar relationship when God said, guess what? You'll be my people and I'll be your God. And here's what you'll get. You'll get me. It's the same invitation that's given to Christians. He takes your old, wicked, stupid, selfish, sinful life. And he gives you Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, the acceptance of Jesus, everything that Jesus is and all that the father admires and embraces about his son is now found in you. Jesus is your portion. He's your deliverer. He's the source of your friendship and fellowship. The word Tribe, Shebet, it can mean tribe or it can mean rod in the sense of scepter. It means ruler or measuring rod. The word translated tribe may mean exactly that, tribe. If that's exactly what it means, then Ephraim isn't so much a big stick. That means politically important. In other words, when you think of Judah as a country and you think of Jerusalem as a city, it's not the largest nation and it's not the most opulent. It is small and humble. But guess what? Judah and Jerusalem, they have as their portion the true and living God. We in Colorado have as our portion one of the most beautiful places on the planet Earth. If you go north to Montana and Idaho and Wyoming, you have Yellowstone as your portion. I've been to Israel many times. There's no place in the entire country of Israel that's as beautiful as Wyoming and Montana and Colorado. We have beautiful mountains. We have beautiful Lakes and rivers and streams. We are glutted with resources, natural and human. But none of that matters in comparison to having God as your God and Jesus as your Savior. That's the point that's being made. By the way, idolatry is bad. But what's the cure for idolatry? Well, according to, to Jeremiah, you have to have a proper vision of the true and living God. In other words, the cure for idolatry 
is to have right thinking about the person of God and right speaking about the person of God and a right heart about God. W.H.H. Aiken prayed this way. He said, Lord, take my lips, speak through them, take my mind, think through it, take my heart and then set it on fire. That's the cure for idolatry. Fill your heart with the knowledge of God. Fill your mind with love and affection for God. Fill your speech with the magnificence of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Oswald Chambers wrote, Whenever we take what God has done, And we put it in the place of himself. We become idolaters. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the good doctor, gave us a clue. Symptoms. If we might be infected with idolatry, he wrote, quote, A man's God is that for which he lives, for which which is prepared to give his time, his energy, his money, That which stimulates him and rouses him and excites him and enthuses him, unquote. In other words, you might have a problem with idolatry if you trust people and possession and position to do for you what only God can do for you. Chuck Swindoll is so wonderful. He said, quote, it's easy to get attached to idols. Good things inappropriately adored. But when you have Jesus in the center of the room, everything else only junks up the decor. Isn't that good? It makes me want to throw away everything. Except for Jesus. You know, when I watched Hoarders, I realized something. There's something inside certain people that they're unable to distinguish something that is valuable from something that is worthless. A hoarder says everything is valuable. That mechanism inside of them that says that's trash. It's been broken. It's not working right. That's what happens to us sometimes. There's something inside of our heart that's broken. Where we think that something is valuable when it is not. We can appreciate the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. But then we get carried away by these other affections and these other attractions. So how do you stand? Well, the way you stand is what Paul said in Ephesians. As slaves of Jesus Christ, do the will of God wholeheartedly. If you're a slave of Jesus and you follow Jesus, then guess what? You're going to be fine. But you have to keep your eyes firmly focused on your friend, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we... As we go through this contrast and compare between uh, comparison of idolatry and the true and the living God, Lord. I'm sure that each and every one of us have 
things that we struggle with and distractions that encumber us. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray. We pray, we pray like W.H.H. Aiken. Take my lips and speak through them. Take my mind and think through it. Take my heart. And then set it on fire. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.